Why does the writer of the book of Hebrews compare Jesus with angels? He does that in verses 3 and 4. It says, When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. For to what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The writer has more to say about angels, but let's get on with this question. Why does he compare Jesus with angels? How will such a comparison be significant? Well, angels might not have much value to you, but angels were in a place of high honor in the scriptures. They represented God when they spoke to Abraham and to Moses. To them was given the privilege of bringing to earth the holy and eternal word of God. Yet Jesus is greater than the angels. Angels serve him. They worship at his feet. They honor and glorify him. Some 300 texts in the Bible speak of these remarkable creatures. Shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus said he could have called on the Father and he would have sent forth twelve legions of angels to assist him. A legion was about 5,000, but one would have been enough. So great are angels that only one was required to wipe out the firstborn in the land of Egypt before the Exodus. Only one was needed to destroy the Assyrian army under King Sennacherib in 700 B.C., which is one of the most awesome miracles in the Bible and also supported by archaeological discoveries. Angels announce the birth of this great person, Jesus, a host of them, and a vast army of them will accompany him when he returns to reign. But Jesus is greater. Why? Because God has given him the honorable title of his son. He said here in Hebrews chapter 1, For to what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son? To be a son of God is to be supreme. Think of what that means to you and to me. God has so honored those who believe that he designates them sons. Let's not take that title lightly. To be a son is to be honored higher than all other creatures. Yes, Jesus Christ is the son of God. And the angels worship him. He is the Son they honor. He is the Redeemer they praise. Jesus is the Word of God, whose commands they counted a privilege to hear and to obey. And Jesus is the brightness of the glory of the Father. Jesus is the full reflection of the Father, not like a prophet who spoke. All his life and actions expressed God, the Eternal Father. The love of Jesus was the Father's love. His warmth was the Father's warmth. What a fantastic claim this book makes for Jesus, and that claim bears the character of inspiration in harmony with Jesus' words when he said, I am the light of the world. A few men got a glimpse of that glory and brightness when Jesus was transfigured. You are familiar with the story. 
He took Peter, James, and John into a mountain, and there he was transformed into a dazzling light. And God spoke from heaven, This is my beloved Son, hear him. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he is the express image of the Father. He's a reproduction of the Eternal Father, the perfect image, a first-class representation of what God is, not what God looks like, for God is a spirit. How do we know God loves the unlovely? Because his express image loved the unlovely. How can we know that the Father pities the poor, the lame, the blind, and the widow? Because Jesus did. That's how. How do we know that the Father forgives? Because Jesus forgave, and he represented the Father. Verse 3 tells us, When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. Why this emphasis on him being seated? Because his work was done. Angels have done no work for us. But the Son has. And he said on the cross, It is finished. He completed the mission for which he was sent by the Father. Now there were priests in the temple, and there were priests in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, but they never sat down. They continually offered sacrifices which could never take away sins. Those sacrifices could not cleanse the conscience. But Jesus Christ, when he offered one sacrifice for all men for all time, sat down. There is a rest for God's people, and that rest is found in the one who completed the work for God's people, and he rested. And no wonder Paul wrote to the Romans and said, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are resters. They aren't working for salvation because Christ's work is complete. Now when Paul wrote to the Ephesians in that epistle, he prayed for the believer's understanding of this truth. Listen to how he expressed it, beginning with verse 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe, according to the working of his great might which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet, and has made him the head over all things for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, those who believe are not going to be standing in heaven. 
because not a single sin remains unpaid, and your seat in heaven is reserved. You will be seated. You will rest like Christ our Savior is resting. This completeness of salvation's work for the sinner was expressed by letter and word of mouth to the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, following that Jerusalem council meeting recorded in Acts chapter 15. And after that meeting, the elders and the apostles concluded that Christians had no need for works of the law or circumcision, only abstinence from offensive heathen practices. And in verse 31 of Acts 15, we read this, And when they read it, that is, the letter from the apostles, they rejoiced at the exhortation, and we should also, because we are not to be about working in order to try to fulfill the law which Christ has already done. Now, what religion can compare with what we read here? Only Christianity has a sin-cleansing remedy that also cleanses the conscience and offers a relationship based on what God has done for man and requires no meritorious performance by us. It's not unusual, nor should we be surprised when people say, but this kind of a presentation of salvation where God does everything and man does nothing isn't fair. Uh, shouldn't we be doing something? Friends, I don't want fairness. If I were to get fairness, then God would have to judge me for my sins. I don't want fairness. I want mercy. And that's why the message is called good news. It's not fair. Christ suffered for me. In no way can that be fair. But it's good news because we get something at another's cost. All other religions make men strive for an uncertain salvation, but faith in Christ gives assurance of acceptance by God. We know we have final and complete forgiveness. You see, all religions are trying to climb a ladder of good works to reach God, who doesn't want their works. And Jesus made that clear when he talked to the Jews who asked him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Why do people keep trying to save themselves? Because they have rejected the gospel, or they have misunderstood grace, or they want glory for themselves by what they can do for themselves, and they want to earn a reward from God, and they think that salvation is a reward. Well, let's get back to this right hand of the Father where Jesus is seated. It tells us that at the end of verse 3. The expression, at the right hand, is not much different from how we use it today. We often talk about someone's right-hand man. And that designates the very top rank of authority and the place of special trust and honor. The language is figurative, for God is a spirit. But the scene is heaven's throne, where all power and authority reside. There our Savior rests, having completed all that was necessary to ensure our total salvation, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne in heaven. 
Now, I want to comment further on this matter of Jesus being superior to the angels because I think there was a problem in the first century that the writer may have been addressing, and the clue to it comes in Colossians 2.18, which says this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, taking his stand on visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, who is Christ, of course. Something was happening in the Colossian church, and we think it was the first influences of that heresy known as Gnosticism, which exalted angels and caused people to worship them. To our listeners in the Baton Rouge area, we want to remind you about our Sunday morning Bible class. This class begins at 9.15 and is open to the public. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calabota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our new mailing address is RBC Ministry, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.